Alrighty. Good afternoon, everybody. It has been a long six weeks series. It was a five-part series, but then we were blessed with Father Felixinos coming, so we have a six-part series here all throughout the season of Lent, in which we are wrapping up today, talking about the B-I-B-L-E. The title has been Opening the Senses, the Complexity and Nourishment of the B-I-B-L-E. Since this is our last talk for the series, I thought I would share uh, some very weird, interesting facts about the Bible. Supposedly, it is the most stolen book in the world, is the Bible. But I guess that's because it's also the top-selling book of all times. It is written over 1,500 years in three different languages over three different continents. So as we've been mentioning over the past several weeks, and obviously if you have missed any of them, today might not make total sense, but you can catch up on all the other series on the podcast or on the YouTube channel for the church. But the, the Bible is a collection of books. The Bible is not a book, but it is a collection of different manuscripts, different poems, different historical context. It's different styles of writing that are all collected in something that we title now being called the Bible, but it's written over 1,500 years. But the original Bible, which was put together officially in the fourth century, the original Bible has more books probably than the Bible that you are aware of. So the original Bible includes extra books in which the, the Protestant church and many other versions of Christianity have omitted. So 500 years ago, there was a movement to remove some extra books from the Bible, quote-unquote extra books from the Bible. But in reality, they are still the Bible. So the original Bible, which I'm holding up in my hand, is called the Orthodox Study Bible, has these extra books. So I just wanted to share that fun fact for you. Another weird fun fact, the longest word in the Bible. The longest word in the Bible. You ready? Meher Shalah Hajbaz. And the only reason I'm showing this word, because the first part of that is my dad's name, Meher. So that's, but that's the longest word and obviously name in the Bible. That's not my, that's not my dad's name. Meher is just the first part, but that's like the full name in the Bible. When Jesus died, caretakers came to go check on the body of Christ. And when they found that the tomb was empty, no one expected someone has risen from the dead. And you and I would not think that either. Like if we bury somebody and we come to it a few days later and we find it empty, nobody would be thinking that person rose. Our first thing would be the same thing they thought is, oops, I made a wrong turn somewhere. I came to the wrong tomb. And this is what they exactly thought. They thought they, turned, they made a wrong turn somewhere. They're at the wrong tomb when they found that the tomb was empty. It was the reality of the tomb being empty that sparked the movement to put together the B-I-B-L-E. It was the movement, the reality of when they realized there is an empty tomb, that someone has risen and overcome the physics and reality of death. It was this reality that sparked the movement to begin to document and record all the details of the life of Jesus and to start connecting the dots of Jewish history as well. So the first half of this entire big booklet that we call the Bible is a, a collection of Jewish manuscripts. If it wasn't for Jesus, there would be really nice stories to really tell a bunch of elementary kids about really awesome stories, and that's about it. But what makes it so alive and what made it so intriguing to first century 
Jews is now that they found Jesus in those Jewish stories, in those narratives. Now they were beginning to look at these Jewish manuscripts and these Jewish texts through a completely different lens because now they experienced the one who is the fullness of life. And once they experienced him, all of a sudden everything became alive. All of a sudden they began to look at the story of Noah and, Noah and the flood and Jonah and Moses, and they started looking at all this stuff. It wasn't dry. It wasn't just like really cute stories. Now it was life to them. Now they were able to look at it through the lens of a Christological lens, as we talked about several weeks ago. But in the New Testament, which sparks by the life of Jesus, there was someone who began to take the life of Jesus and wanted to give handles to the life of Jesus. And this person was an ex-terrorist. And this terrorist went by the name of Saul. Well, by the name of Saul. And why he was such an, a great terrorist, he was really good at his job, is that he was so knowledgeable on Jewish text. He was probably the top five Jews of the world at that time. Like, he was on a mission to kill anyone who wasn't Jew, uh, Jew and, and to, to really evangelize why Judaism is the way to go. And his name was Saul. But once he encountered Jesus, his name began to change from, instead of a, a Jewish name of Saul, he, he took a, a Roman name being known as Paul, the apostle. But as I mentioned, his past was nothing to be proud of as he was an ex-terrorist. But here's this person who wrote over 14 letters to different groups of churches or uh, different groups of communities of Jesus followers all around the Mediterranean Rim. So if, even if you look at this icon, which is uh, not only an orthodox icon, but following the style of Coptic um, art. So as you see, what's being reflected behind him is he's holding a bunch of letters, which are letters that he's writing to inspire and cheer on and motivate and correct different groups of Christians all around major cities around the Mediterranean Rim. And you see this body of water around him. Uh, this would be the Mediterranean Sea. And then you see some, uh, you know, some uh, items behind reflecting the different cities or countries that he went to go visit. So as he's writing such a wide array of different letters, talking to different cultures, different needs, like so one place he had to talk to them about like women, another party had to talk about sexuality, another party had to talk about order. So he had to address different topics depending on the needs and the spiritual state of that certain community or that certain group of churches. So as he's writing this, like here he is to us, he's a hero. I mean, the guy wrote almost half of the New Testament there is not a single Orthodox service that doesn't go by in which we do not mention the name of Paul the Apostle. So here's this big guy. But if he, if he was with us now, and we say, man, Paul, you're the best, you're the man, like you wrote so many great things, like we love you so much, he would say, what are you talking about? I am the least of the apostles. Actually, he said it himself. He wrote to the city of Corinth, which is in this country of Corinth, Greece. Thank you. So he said this. So St. Paul said these words. He said, for I am the least of the apostles. Paul, why are you saying you're the least? You're Paul, Paul, the apostle. Everywhere we go, everyone knows who Paul is. Everywhere, anywhere we go to any beach on the Mediterranean Sea, everyone knows who Paul, the apostle is. They know you as the great missionary. So why are you saying you're the least of the apostles? For I am the least of the apostles, who I am not worthy to be called an apostle. Like an apostle is someone who is a messenger, who is delivering the message. I, 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 I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I love this, I am what I am. He's saying, I have a past on which I'm not proud of. But you know what? 
I'm not defined by my past. Because of God's favor toward me, that's what the word grace means, I am what I am. Like God is working within me. He has taken the darkness of my past, and which I am not proud of. He's taken that and redeemed me and restored me and put me on a path to redeem me and to bring edification to others. I'm the least of the apostles, believe me. I have a past in which I'm not proud of. But God has used my weakness. God has used my sins to restore me, to bring a light to others. So I'm speaking to you out of weakness. I'm speaking to you out of vulnerability. I'm not talking down to you. I'm also speaking as a sinful, weak person. I'm the least of the apostles. This is his story. This is his story, which makes his writing so inspirational. As we talked about over the past couple weeks, what is your story? Just like as we looked at the story of the Samaritan woman. What is your story of the man who was paralyzed? What is your story? Their story sparked inspiration to others because they were vulnerable to share. But for us, we don't want, no, no, no. Everything's fine. We make ourselves look like the most amazing people on social media. We always have the smile on us. But we do not want to bring out our weakness to bring light to others. But if we're going to follow Jesus, it requires us to acknowledge and embrace what is your story. And it's Paul's story that gives light and life, not only to people around the Mediterranean Rim 2,000 years ago, but to us now. One of my favorite verses in which St. Paul writes so vulnerable, he writes to a city and he tells them, the thing I'm doing now, I hate. Like the thing I'm doing now, I hate. The thing I know I should be doing, I can't get myself to do. How many of us can relate to that type of language? The thing that I'm doing now, my struggle, my sin, my mindset, my anger, my pride, my lust, the thing I'm doing now, I hate. But the thing I want to become, the person I want to become, I'm trying to get myself to become. That vulnerability, that spirit in which he writes is what makes his writings so inspirational. And if you ask any scholar, even those who might not be Christian in their worldview, would say that the writings of St. Paul shaped Western civilization. His writings shaped Western civilization by the style of his writing. So I, what I want to share with you this morning, or this afternoon, I should say, is three gotta-know things you gotta know about St. Paul. You know, if this person has written a, 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 you know, half of the New Testament by his writings, 14 letters, I want us to know come just three random things that you gotta know about St. Paul, the apostle. The first thing is this. St. Paul was writing letters, not the Bible. I'm kind of stating the obvious, but I want to make sure that we start there. It's not like St. Paul said, oh, right, Monday morning, page 1, chapter 1, verse 1, time to write the Bible. No, I don't want us to think that. As he visited different places, in some places he didn't visit, he heard from other disciples what was the state of that, of that city. He understood some of the issues they're going through, and he wanted to write to them to either inspire them, motivate them, discipline them, teach them the correction, show them the way to life to the fullness of life. So he would write different things depending on what was his agenda, right? So as we look from that video, like there was different agendas of why he would write different things. But it's not like he woke up and says, I want to write the Bible. These are just letters that he wrote to give handles to the gospel. Like the gospels, the four records of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give the record of, of, from witnesses or first eyewitnesses or from research on the life of Jesus. But St. Paul wanted to show others how to execute that, how to apply that to your lives. Cool, Jesus is awesome. Now St. Paul is telling them how you need to apply it to your own lives. So this is what inspired him to write letters, not just the Bible. This is why you have to understand the context of what he is writing. Sometimes he would write, women, you need to be submissive. 
Women can't speak. You and I, mm, in 2022, we read that. What? Look how sexist. That's why I left the church. The church is so sexist. But I want to take a, a pause, time out. What's the context of his writing? Who is he writing to? What's the cultural m- mindset of the people in which he is writing to? What, made it, what motivated him to write such a sexist thing? So we need to understand the context. We need to understand the culture of who he's writing to. So we need to understand the author's mindset. We need to understand the audience's mindset. This is nothing new. All of you guys are smart. You already know that. Everything you read, you understand the style of the writer, and you, need, you also understand who is the audience intended for. So this is why it's easy to take anything out of context and just blow it out of proportion. And so many people that I know, and I'm sure you know, have deconverted from Christianity because I came across something, that's exactly why I left. Because it's sexist, because it's biased, because it's outdated, because it's cultural, because it's old school, you name it. Because we take something out of context without understanding the full context of his writing. Point number one, you gotta know, St. Paul was writing letters, not the B-I-B-L-E. Point number two, He explains parts of the Bible. What I love, just how God utilized him as a vessel for the church. That here's a guy who knew 632 laws of Jewish, the Jewish Bible, of the Jewish scripture. He he knew all the laws. I mean, he was a mastermind when it came to knowing the Jewish religion. And here he is now talking about the liberty and life found in Jesus, how he has come to set him free. And because now he has now become a Christian convert, but his background is, is, is a Jew. Now he c- helps us understand things of the Old Testament, which doesn't make any sense to us, but he explains to us how we should view now Jewish scripture. He connects the dots for us. He builds the bridge for us because many of us, we say, why do we need to spend time on the Old Testament? It's confusing. It's like all about wars and like wrath and blah, and we just kind of want to put it aside. But St. Paul explains to us how we should look at that first half of the B-I-B-L-E because him, he was himself a Jew. I want to share with you a few of my favorite verses, just a few of my favorite things, a few of my favorite verses in which St. Paul writes to different cities or different regions around the Mediterranean Rim. I just want you to capture how he adds handles to the life of Jesus. Like if I tell you, uh, you know, go do whatever, but if I tell you, go mow the lawn, this is a poor example, but I tell you, go mow the lawn, you're like, okay, and then I'll tell you, okay, I'm going to show you how to mow the lawn. I'm going to roll my sleeve. I'm going to tell you how to do it. And I'm going to, show, I'm going to give you handles on how to execute what I'm asking you. So in the same way, we're all trying to find life in something, in some, in some way. But if we're going to, 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 to go with that Jesus being the fullness of life, St. Paul gives us how we can hold on to him, how we can find life in Christ. So I want to share with you one thing that he wrote to the city of Philippi. One verse, he said this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. There has been dozens, dozens, and dozens of times in which St. Paul in his writings, everything he says is one another. Inspire one another. Encourage one another. Love one another. It's all about one another, one another. You will be defined as being a follower of Jesus, not by what you know, but how you love one another, how you inspire one another, how you encourage one another, how you cheer one another. So St. Paul is telling us, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. If this just said in your relationships with one another, one, love, love each other, you, your definition to that would be very different than me. But now St. Paul gives us tangible handles to hold on to. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Pursue the mindset, pursue the ideology, 
pursue the fullness of who Jesus is in all your relationships with one another. And yes, also with that annoying person in your life. St. Paul would probably add in parentheses to that verse. You need to attain the mindset of Christ. This verse is such a big deal. It's unique to the Coptic Orthodox Church. On Good Friday, in, on the afternoon service, we read a Pauline epistle. Pauline epistle is just a fancy word of saying we read one of the letters of St. Paul, in which we chant this verse for, with an introduction and conclusion. This is one of those 15-minute hymns in which we all kind of sit down. But the church gives us a time to meditate and digest this verse in your relationships with one another. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So the church is wanting to absorb this verse so much, especially on Good Friday. So I just want to show how this is connected into the, the Orthodox liturgical life. I want to share with you another letter in which he wrote to the city of Ephesus. He told him this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's saying, you sh that's such a yucky word in, in, in this day and age. Submit submission, that's, that's so old school, right? To submit Right? But here's St. Paul saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the person next to you, that person in which you want to one-up them, you should submit to them. You should put yourself below them because they are the icon of Christ. That person in which you want to try to get back at, they are beautifully made in the image of Christ just as you are. So you are called to submit to them. You are supposed to put yourself, you are called to put yourself below them. Something that I, I love to share in uh, premarital retreats, that marriage is intended to be a submission competition. Marriage is designed to be a submission competition in which two are submitting to each other, putting the other person before themselves. Like this, this, this is the fullness of marriage, the sacrament of marriage, not just the legal partnership and yeah, I love you, you love me. And, no, like the, the fullness of, the, of the, the mystery of this union is a submission competition of both submitting to each other. By the way, this verse is embedded, or not embedded, is the introduction to the Pauline epistle for a wedding ceremony in the Orthodox Church, in which the church reminds them. It's not just the wife submit to the, to, to, to the husband. Like some people love to take that out of context. Oh, the wife should submit. It's both. It's not my words. Simple. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Another verse I want to share with you from from. Uh, that St. Paul wrote to the city of Ephesus, to the Ephesians. He said this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Isn't that nice? Nobody disagrees with that. Nobody, like, if you, no, if, if you raise your hand saying, no, this is wrong, you're unethical. Like, you, no. You, we as civilized people, agree. Buddha agrees with this. Everyone agrees with this. You name it. Everyone's world religion. Someone who's a nun, N-O-N-E. That means they're none of the above. They're not Christian, Jew, Muslim. No, they're just none of the above. Everyone would agree because everyone's a nice person. Everyone would agree this is a great verse to live by. But the verse does not end there. How should I, how should I, so how should I be kind and compassionate to one another? How should I forgive one another? How should I be kind? <laughs> there was a Coptic priest that died a couple days ago. And someone stabbed the, the priest with a knife in his neck and killed him. If I interviewed the, the guy who killed the priest, are you kind? Of course. Very kind and compassionate. I'm doing what I'm called to do. I'm supposed to kill this priest. He's, doing, he's very kind. He's very compassionate. He has his own definition of being kind and compassionate. Everyone has their own definition of being kind and compassionate. The, 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 any war going on, the, you ask the soldiers that you, they just killed innocent civilians, are you kind and compassionate? Yes, I'm very kind and compassionate. Everyone's kind and compassionate. So St. Paul's saying, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. 
But how does he add handles to this verse? Just as Christ God forgave you, if you know that you have been redeemed, if you know that someone has given you a new life because he overcame death to give you life, if you and I embrace that reality and know this is our identity, then this should inspire us to forgive that annoying person who gets really under your skin at work, maybe in your home. Then, it's, then it pushes us, inspires us, it pushes us to, to forgive others. It's not easy. I don't press a button and say, yeah, yeah I'm going to forgive them. But are we moving in that direction? Like Jesus gave us this very nice theoretical prayer, the Lord's Prayer, in which he tells us, Lord, forgive my trespasses just as I forgive those. It's easy to say it, but are we acting it out? And St. Paul is encouraging the city of Ephesus. He's encouraging these new Christian converts to put this into action. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's annoying. Yes, it's tiring. Yes, it's draining. But this is what's required of you if you are calling yourself a follower of Jesus. So the first half of the sentence, you and I would agree. Perfect. Boom. But the second half is where we find the handles of how it becomes tangible, how it becomes incarnational to our lives. This, my friends, is what makes us better parents, spouses, co-workers, friends, if we push ourselves to embrace this reality, if we take St. Paul's words and connect it with the records of the Gospels and push ourselves to be comfortably uncomfortable, to make this a reality in our lives. Every single Orthodox service let me speak about the Coptic Orthodox Church. Every single Eucharist or liturgical celebration of the Coptic Orthodox Church, we always recite one passage from St. Paul. Like, this is how much of a big deal he is. Like, he gives such great handles and execution to Jesus' life that we recite some passage of his from one of the 14 letters every liturgy. And I want to share with you the inaudible prayers that the priest or bishop prays during the Pauline Epistle. Like, while the, uh, the passage is being read to the congregation, I want to share with you what are the silent prayers in which the priest is praying as we read the Pauline Epistle. I want to share with you. These are, like, I don't want to say secret prayers, but these are, like, inaudible prayers to a priest, okay? You have called upon Paul, who was for some time a persecutor, to be a chosen vessel. And in this, you are pleased that he should be called to be an apostle and a preacher of the gospel of your kingdom, O Christ our God. Again, this is a prayer in which the pray, priest is praying silently. You also now, O good one, and lover of mankind, we ask you, grant us and all your people a mind free from wondering. Isn't this cool? That the church is praying for us not to have a free mind, like a mind that's just wandering. How, and don't raise your hand, please. But how many of us, our mind begins to wander in liturgy? Like, we just be like, when is this over? Is this almost over? Is it time to sit down? Can I just kneel? Right? We're thinking through all that in our head. Is it lunchtime? Is it, I want my coffee. We're thinking through all that. And here the priest is praying, God, give us a mind free from wandering and a clear understanding that we may know and understand how profitable are your holy teachings, which are now read to us through him. So with the church, the priest is praying for the congregation. Lord, pray. I'm praying for myself and for all of us not to have a mind free from wandering. I want us to be focused so we can find the edification and life and how profitable are these words that give us life. This is what the priest is praying inaudibly for all of us. And as he, Paul, 
Paul followed your example, O author of life. So make us also worthy to be like him in deed and in faith, that we may glorify your holy name and glory in your, in your cross at all times. So he's saying, just as Paul, who was just a vessel, a broken, weak, sinful person, who was used as, as, as the, the vehicle to bring life to so many cities, as he followed your example, O author of life. I love how the church uses, not just saying God again, but calling God the author of life. You and I are trying to find life. We're trying to find some, some comfort through the pain in this world. But here the church calls God, not just God, but the author of life. I love that. So three things you got to know. You guys with me so far? Everyone good? So three things you got to know. The first one he said, St. Paul has writing letters. Uh, what? what? Was, uh, sorry, St. Paul was writing letters, not the Bible. And point number two, he explains the parts of the Bible. Point number three, as we wrap up, three thing, the third thing you got to know. He authenticates, St. Paul authenticates the most important event in world history. He authenticates the most important event in world history in his writings. What on earth am I talking about? This is nonsense. What we are doing here is nonsense if it was not for the resurrection. All of this is pointless unless death has been overcome. And St. Paul adds another level of authenticity to validate this event in his writings. Not only do we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but also Paul adds another level of uh, to, to make the, the, the event, historical reality of the resurrection. He gives it more authenticity by his writings. And I want to share with you what he said to the city of Corinth, Greece. This is his first letter that he wrote to them. He says, For I, Paul, delivered to you first of all that which I also received. He's saying, I'm delivering to you. People of Corinth, listen up. I'm writing this. I'm only sharing with you what I have received. I'm delivering it to you. I'm passing it down. This is such an integral part to the Orthodox Church. We've talked about this before. I'm not going to reiterate it. But he's saying, I'm, what I received, I'm passing down the fullness of what I received. I'm passing it down to you. That Christ, this colon, and then he's going to recite like this creed. So many historical scholars would say this, what he's about to write down, it was almost like a marching anthem for the church in the first century. This is like, this is like their mantra that they followed. This was their creed that they said. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So he's, he's saying, I'm delivering to you the fullness of what identifies you and what identifies me. He continues. And that he, Jesus, was seen by Cephas. Another name for Cephas. This is trivia. Anybody know what's another, another name for Cephas? Yeah. Peter. Yeah, very good. So Peter. So, and so that Jesus was seen by Peter, then by the 12, 12 disciples. After that, Jesus was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep. Like 500 people have seen Jesus, the risen Lord, at once, but some have fallen asleep. This is critical. Do not, don't go past this so quickly. That Jesus, like St. Paul, is using now a language for one of the first times that we see that those 500 people that saw Jesus, the risen Lord, some of them have not died, but have fallen asleep. Huge difference for him to use that language, and he's so intentional and critical of using that language. Some have fallen asleep. When you and I sleep or take a nap, we eventually wake up. So St. Paul's making it very clear. He's, he's adding more emphasis and authenticity to the event of the resurrection. 
And he's saying, I'm, what I received, I'm passing down to you. Cephas, my boy, Peter saw it, the 12 saw it, and 500 other people. And some have already departed. Some have already fallen asleep. Some people have already have eternal rest. But, I, what, but it doesn't matter. They're resting. Cool. But it's the resurrection in which we're looking for. All this is temporary. All this is like vapor. So they're falling asleep. So, but 500 eyeballs, 500 pairs of eyeballs, including the 12 disciples, including Peter, they have all seen the resurrection. And this is what identifies us. And he's adding more authenticity to the reality of it. One of my favorite books, and do not, I don't want to bore you, is a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And these are the eyewitness accounts. Like when people say, like, how do we know any of this is legit? Like, how do we, how do we know any of this is for real? Are we just really just going by what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say? No. What did Paul say? What about all these other manuscripts that we have in history? This is what identifies us. Because no one was standing outside the tomb waiting for Jesus to rise from the dead. No one was waiting outside the tomb like, guys, come on, it's very early Sunday morning, right? It's countdown, already 10, 9, 8, he's about to but No one was expecting that. But it was this event of there being an empty tomb is what gives us life and hope, not theoretically but in a real, tangible way. And there's enough evidence that should blow our mind away of this. I'm not smart, but if somebody predicts their own death, overcomes death, and not one, not four, not 12, but 500 people record and see the reality of someone rising from the dead, I'm all into whatever they say. In the early 100 years of the church, it was the declaration of Jesus' death is what gave them hope. And they began to chant things like, your death, O Lord, we proclaim. What other worldview, what other world religion would say a death is which we proclaim? That's so weird if you kind of take a step back. Nobody's death we proclaim because we know it's not a death, it's a sleep. That, that leads to new life, that leads to resurrection. Like I said, in the fourth century, this was officially put together, these collection of books titled in Latin, Tabiblia, or the Bible in the fourth century. But the Bible did not create Christianity. The Bible did not create Christianity. This records the life and reality of Jesus and connects and threads all of it together. Bottom line is this for our six-part series. Christianity is the result of an event that created a movement that produced texts that were collected, protected, and bound into a book. Again, Christianity is the result of an event, and that event we just talked about, that created a movement that produced texts that were collected, protected, and bound into a book. And this book is what we call the B-I-B-L-E. This is why I like to spend every day with the Bible. This is why I pray that wherever you are right now in your view and hesitations and skepticism of the Bible, I pray that this series will make you question your view, will make me convict you to just say, you know what, I'm going to spend a little bit more time in this thing called the Bible tomorrow morning. I pray that it becomes embedded into your daily life for us to find life. If it inspired 
thousands of people and for them to give their life to collect all of this together and bound it together, there must be something in it for you and me. Maybe, maybe this is the manual to life. Let's stand for a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, somehow you have preserved and collected such a wide array of writings for us to hold on to now and for us to gain life from. And we're grateful how accessible it is to us. But Lord, I pray that regardless of where we might stand right now with you, regardless of where we might stand right now with just the Bible in general, Lord, I pray that we can just take that one step and give you that next chance and give it another shot of just maybe. Maybe there is life for us in it. Maybe there is edification for us in it. Lord, I pray that we can take this step for us to embed your holy word into our lives. I pray that as we prepare ourselves for Holy Week coming up, that as we go through one Bible reading after another, that we can find life in it, for it to cleanse us, for us to renew, for your word to renew us and for your word to restore us. Through the prayers of all your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray together saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.